Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Nicolette Han Nyman, the author of Defending Beef. Nicolette, hey, how are you doing? It's so great to see you today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Nicolette Han Nyman is a writer, attorney, and livestock rancher. She authored the book Defending Beef, as well as the book Righteous Pork Chop, and has written numerous essays for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times. She has also written for the Atlantic, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Earth Island Journal. Nicolette is a frequent speaker at national and international conferences and was one of just 23 speakers from around the world at the Nobel Week Dialogue in 2016 in Stockholm, Sweden. She has appeared on the PBS NewsHour, The Dr. Oz Show, and in numerous films and documentaries, including Eating Animals, as well as Sustainable. And her work has been featured in Time, O Magazine, and The Guardian, among many others. Previously, she was senior attorney for the environmental organization Waterkeeper, where she focused on animal agriculture and before that was an environmental lawyer for National Wildlife Federation. Nicolette served two terms on the City Commission for Kalamazoo, Michigan, and today she lives in Northern California with her two sons and her husband, Bill Nyman, founder of the natural meat companies Nyman Ranch and BN Ranch. Nicolette, uh, today we're talking about defending beef, and I, I'm, I'm really, really excited to get into this topic because among the many themes and threads out there in the climate movement, the regenerative movement, the food and health movement, this, this issue seems to be one that bubbles up quite often and has a lot of misperceptions and, and varying views and opinions out there in the public. So maybe to kick things off, I'll, ju I'll just uh, throw it right right up uh, for you. Maybe it's a bit of a softball. Why does beef need defending? Yes. Well, I kind of wish that it didn't, <laughs> you know, because it's a kind of a frustrating uh, process to have to try to defend something over and over again that you kind of don't don't feel needs to be defended. Um, but I guess it's it's kind of a two pronged. Uh, response. On, on the one hand, there's this whole question of the healthfulness of the food. Is it something that is good for our bodies and will sustain us, you know, our health over the longer term? And, and that's an idea that's kind of been out there, I would say, since around mid 20th century. There was this kind of rise in heart disease in the industrialized world. And there were actually two major camps on the topic. Um, one really felt that it related to the consumption of animal fats in the industrialized world. And then there was another group of researchers, scientists, and physicians that felt that actually the shift towards more sugar in the industrialized diet was much more important in terms of um you know, what might be triggering the rise in heart disease and other diet related diseases. And unfortunately, the sort of um, the dietary fat um, argument kind of won the day at the time. 
And even though over the last couple of decades, there has been some really good and credible reevaluation of the thought process and the, you know, the research to the point where I would say the argument has actually been dismantled, <laughs> uh, but it was out there for so many decades that it's still a very mainstream belief, even among nutritionists, dietitians, and doctors. But from my perspective, the science is basically has been broken down to the point where it's it's not credible anymore. So on the health side, there's still this argument that we shouldn't be eating it because of primarily because of the saturated fat content. On the other side, and this is kind of a more is a little bit newer of an argument. Um, there's this argument that meat is too ecologically damaging. It's too resource intensive. It's too water intensive. And, and specifically beef. The beef is the one that usually gets the focus in this in this arena. And then in the last decade in particular, this idea that it's too harmful to the climate, especially because of methane. So um, I, you know, as a, as a person who was kind of a lifelong environmentalist and spent three years specifically working as a lawyer for environmental organizations, nonprofit organizations, and two of those years were specifically focused on the meat industry. I'm someone who really you know, has kind of delved into this from, you know, on a professional level, um, this, you know, what, what does the science really say on the ecology? And then for the last 20 years, I've been living and working on a ranch and, uh, and have met ranchers all over the world and really studied it from that perspective, from a practitioner's perspective. And so I have increasingly become convinced that the ecological argument is just uh, just a very, very wrong on many levels. And so what my defense of beef is, is kind of this two, two pronged, um, you know, refutation of these two sort of, you know, uh, I'd say almost commonly held beliefs that that beef is not good for your health and that beef is damaging to the environment. And so I, you know, the more, the more I learned about it, the more I felt that someone who had a kind of a, a, not just a deep understanding, but a kind of a nuanced understanding because of these various different components to my background, um, someone needed to really make a cohesive argument um, that beef was valuable uh, food for our health and also ecologically when done well beneficial yeah you know i'm uh, really really excited we have the opportunity to dive into this with you and, and unpack this a little bit for our audience um and and i have found uh you know in the in the years i've been doing this kind of related work that uh this this beef and animal issue seems to be among the most polarizing out there, uh, at least uh, in the portion of our uh, national demographic that uh, finds the uh, anthropomorphic climate change concern to be genuine. And mm -hmm. what's um, amazing to me and, and what many Americans aren't aware of is that globally, virtually everybody seems to be in, a, in agreement and understanding that uh, human impacted climate change is very real, even though here in the United States, there seems to be some confusion about this. Um, but with, within the arena of folks who are taking that threat seriously, um, this seems to be one of the most uh, uh, polarizing, divisive 
issues, which is astonishing um, for those of us who are engaged directly in agriculture and especially regenerative agriculture. And, you know, we collaborate with dozens and dozens of farmers and ranchers at many scales and, and not one yet in all of these years have I come across a farmer or a rancher who says, yeah, we can uh, maintain and steward soil and landscapes and ecosystems and food production without animals. Um, and, and particularly the, the bovine ruminant animals. Uh, so I'm hoping, and, and your book is so well documented, I'm going to show it to uh, our audience that are looking at the uh, uh, video version of this here. And of course, audio, you're not seeing this, but it's such a beautiful book published yeah. by our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, and the book is so well documented. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can paint a picture for us uh, of the scene, if you will, of cattle grazing on grasslands, the soil ecology, the water, the wildlife, the biodiversity. Because uh, I think a lot of folks ha have a, a very different picture in mind when thinking about this issue. Yeah. Well, I first of all, you said so much. And I just want to respond quickly to a couple points you made. First of all, I have traveled around the world quite a bit in various contexts and in talking a lot, a lot of times I'm talking about beef and, and, and in other, you know, um, capacities where I'm traveling. And I'm always really struck by how the farming and ranching community in other parts of the world is not arguing that climate change is not happening. So it's, it's still a uniquely American phenomenon, pretty much that that is still a, a pretty widely held view in certain quarters of the agricultural community. Although I do think that's shifting. I have noticed a dramatic difference from five or 10 years ago that there's more and more acceptance of it. And also um, interest in the idea of, okay, what can agriculture do? How can we be proactively preparing for these changes? And also how can we be making our own practices better so that we're not contributing to the problem? So I think that's, um, that's kind of how I see where that situation is. And then um, with respect to this whole question of um, the role of animals, I mean, I, you know, I was explaining this issue and thinking about it and writing about it for a long time before I ever heard something that Alan Savory said, the uh, wildlife ecologist from Zimbabwe, who has done such an amazing job establishing sort of holistic management principles in grazing and agriculture in many parts of the world. And the way he said it, that just made so, so much sense to me. And I think it's such a beautiful sort of encapsulation of the whole book that I wrote, Defending Beef. And that is that essentially the globe evolved for millions of years. And for those, for millions and millions of years, there were very large herds of grazing animals and that that was a, a very important element of the earth's ecology and that only in fairly recent times you know so like about the last hundred thousand years which is a long time <laughs> but it's very short in geological time many of those animals either disappeared entirely or their populations dwindled dramatically so we have today, just kind of a remnant of the wild grazing herds, whether they were, 
you know, prehistoric animals or things like caribou, which are still on the earth, but are in much smaller numbers now. And you can just look at it when I give talks and I, um, you know, show slides of the sort of the remnants of large grazing herds that are still on the earth, caribou being one of them. And we also have things like Cape buffalo and wildebeest and the bison in in the American West, although they're a tiny fraction of what what they once were. But what what I like about showing them to people, the visualization is so important. You can see that there are large number of numbers of animals and they're very densely congregated as they move across the landscape and they do move. And so what, what Alan Savory said a few years ago, and I've met him many times and I, I have a strong connection with him and um, have read his, um, you know, seminal book about uh, holistic management. Um, But he, he said in these words that just clicked in my mind is that, we need a proxy, a replacement for the disappeared wild animals that once covered the globe. And so that is why he and I also strongly believe in this idea that the grazing animals like cattle in particular um, are not just, you know, okay. (laughs) They're essential for the ecological function of the earth. And you can, you know, kind of break it down into a lot of different components of why that is. But I think just thinking of it in that context is really helpful. If you think, you know, for for the vast majority of, you know, for millions and millions of years, there were tens of millions of years, there were large grazing herds and they're largely absent today. So we need to sort of figure out how to have that same kind of ecological impact on the earth in order for ecosystems to function properly and especially for the soil to function properly. And so that is kind of a cornerstone of the Defending Beef book. And I have to say, when I first started researching and writing the book, the original version of it, I didn't even know what I just said. <laughs> like I had a lot of other reasons that I thought I could make a great argument for cattle. But this whole idea that they are absolutely essential for soil biology and microbiology, and that it goes way back to this long sort of geological perspective of Earth's long existence was something I did not understand until you know, much more recently and when I started writing this book. That's kind of the short version of the argument. Yeah, it's it's so important. And I want to pick up on that and, and add a little to it. When we were researching for uh, my book, Why on Earth and uh, our Soil Stewardship Handbook, we were looking at the numbers globally for uh, carbon concentration in the atmosphere, in the form of carbon dioxide and methane and some other compounds um, and carbon in the living uh, uh, canopies of the forests, etc. Carbon in the living soils worldwide. And looking at those aggregate numbers, uh, we essentially saw that a 10% increase in soil carbon worldwide from the uh, natural sequestering of atmospheric carbon would be tantamount to sequestering uh, virtually all of the industrial and fossil carbon that we've released since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. 
And so there, there's this very important nexus in the soil itself, right? Vis-a-vis the climate and carbon cycling. I was hoping you could unpack that for us a little bit as well and help us understand, you know, what's going on with the large grazing animals vis-a-vis that kind of carbon soil climate atmosphere connection. Yeah, well, I think a couple of important kind of um, foundational points on that. One is that there's been this very large migration of carbon into the atmosphere, and that a lot of that has come from the soil. And that has been well documented that there's been a dramatic loss Um, basically starting around, you know, the mid 1800s when the sort of industrialization process really started happening. But we've had, you know, we have kind of a long human history that has been impacting the life and health of the soil. And a lot of that relates to the plow, you know, and I was very surprised when um, I was, you know, again, sort of in my research, I was uncovering you know, Wes Jackson saying things like nothing has done more damage to the earth than the plow, <laughs> you know, and it's something that most people, again, especially people outside of agricultural circles would never have thought of that, I don't think. Um, but it's just this basic idea that the earth itself has kind of a protective vegetative blanket. And whenever you sort of, whenever you run a plow through it or anything that's kind of ripping it apart, you're not just taking that protective vegetative blanket off, but you're ripping all of the very um, complex networks, network of roots and filaments that are below ground. And you're doing tremendous damage to the whole sort of subterranean ecosystem that's down there. That is, um, you know, I think just in the last decade, there's been a great deal more awareness of how complex that below ground environment is and how the microorganisms and all the living entities that are down there, whether they're earth, there's been a lot of attention to earthworms and they're very important, but there's much more to it than that. Um, And so whenever we plow the ground, we're sort of dramatically injuring uh, the health of that whole system. And we've been doing this for thousands of years, not just since the 1850s. But so there's this kind of collective impact of agriculture and other human activity that we've been having on how much um, life and health and carbon are in the soil. And those things are all kind of connected. And then we have this sort of rapid acceleration of that whole process happening since the industrialization, the sort of industrial revolution. And, um, And so that, you know, that's kind of a big piece of it. There's been this migration um, from basically from the soil to the atmosphere. And so when you talk about sort of trying to come up with ways to get more carbon back into the soil, not just to take it out of the atmosphere, but also to improve the health of the soil. And then something that I've become much more focused on and interested in the last couple of years in particular is just this whole question of the the importance of doing that in order to create more healthful food. Like these whole, you know, these are sort of simple concepts in a way, but in another way, we rarely hear these things being discussed in the same conversation. And, And I've gotten very intrigued by work of people like Fred Provenza, who've shown how when you have soil that isn't healthful enough, you know, it impacts, you know, when it's not biologically vibrant enough, it impacts 
the health of the plant that's growing there. And then even that affects the health of the animal that's grazing it. Um, and then of course, there's a lot of research now showing that modern versions of fruits, vegetables, grains, even um, animal uh, foods that we're consuming have a much lower nutrient content, the content. They have lower nutritional value to humans. And a lot of that is being connected to this lack of life and health in the soil. So all of this stuff is connected. And the reason why, Erin, you asked me about the role of animals in that. So animals, by being there, you know, and they were there for millions of years, having this impact, these wild grazing animals, and then, of course, domesticating grazing animals have been around for quite a while as well, but in the thousands of years, not in the millions of years. Um, but where an animal uh, treads, it has a number of impacts just by virtue of, um, you know, for example, pushing seeds into the ground. Where it grazes, it clips vegetation, which fosters growth, and also allows other um, species of plants to, that are later sprouting to come up because they have more sunshine that are actually reaching them as seedlings. Um, so there's research um, from all around the world showing that there's greater diversity of vegetation where you have grazing animals, whether domesticated or wild. And then, of course, there's the impact of the manure uh, on the sort of not just people talk a lot of times about the fact that manure has nitrogen, phosphorus, et cetera, in it. But even more importantly, perhaps, is the fact that manure has a lot of microorganisms in it. And so between the nutrients, the moisture, and the microorganisms, manure actually has a dramatically positive effect on the healthfulness of the soil, how much life is in there, and ultimately how much water is retained in there, which allows more life to exist in the soil. And so the grazing animal, if you don't manage it, um, you know, again, to sort of go back to the Ellen Savory concept of proxy for a wild animal, if you manage it in a in a um, in a um, sort of thoughtful way, usually one that kind of mimics the disappeared wild animal that might have been there, um, you will have tremendously beneficial effects from the presence of that animal. It needs to be kind of moving. It needs to be the the land needs to be resting. Um, but the fact that there's that grazing, the cropping of the vegetation, the addition of the manure uh, and the urine back into the soil, and the addition of the microorganisms that are, and also even just um, recently, I was reading something about saliva and the saliva of the animal having an impact on the growth of the plants. So there are just many, many levels, some of which are still being figured out, <clears throat> where it has a positive effect on how much vegetation you have, how much diversity of vegetation, and not just the diversity of the vegetation, but everything from the, the diversity of microorganisms, the diversity of the insect life, all of these things have been shown in many, many studies from around the world to be to be more vibrant, more abundant, uh, um, just more diverse where you have the grazing animals. And they've actually done quite a few studies in every every place from Europe, Asia, United States, where animals were removed from a, a plot of land. A lot of times it's like a park or something like that. And there's a belief that this will help kind of um, help the, the land to recover. And there's been 
a sort of um, surprising result over and over again to the point where it's not even surprising anymore, <laughs> you know, that, that the health of the ecosystem declines. And that's something that Alan Savory talks about as well, that in his work as a wildlife ecologist, that a lot of the the work that he was doing when he was younger, they were trying to reduce numbers of grazing animals, whether they were wild or domesticated. And that again and again, he was witnessing for himself in the African landscapes that the health of the whole ecosystem was declining when they would remove these animals. And that's what kind of triggered his whole life's work of trying to figure out how do we use grazing animals as an ecological renovator and protector rather than, you know, viewing them as inherently damaging. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, that is a major paradigm shift right there. Right. Um, I was struck, you know, we've, we've had uh, our friend, my friend, Brooke LeVan, uh, co-founder of Sustainable Settings, a beautiful biodynamic ranch here in Colorado, um, did a multi-year study with the NRCS. And this study included a number of different farms and ranches, ranging from conventional to organic and biodynamic practices. And in the case of sustainable settings, combination of, of biodynamic regenerative practices and uh, rotational grazing and, and some of the uh, methods recommended by Alan Savory and others, the uh, soil carbon uh, levels uh, grew so dramatically that they literally, after a handful of years, went off the charts, like literally <laughs> had to change the uh, vertical axis uh, uh, increments the NRCS did uh, to accommodate the results they were seeing at sustainable settings. And so we hear, whether it's through the Savory Institute's work or the ecosystem restoration camp movement worldwide, and uh, they rebranded as ecosystem restoration communities. We're seeing in places all around the world, including uh, uh, full blown deserts, mm -hmm. um, this ability to uh, restore uh, landscapes, ecosystems, and thereby sequester incredible amounts of carbon while also significantly impacting the hydrology, the, the water flows in, in those regions. And I know one of the chapters in your book is dedicated to the water. Um, and I was hoping you could you could unpack that a bit for us as well, because I, I think there's all we see some of the uh, old studies that have probably been debunked by now indicating, oh, you know, to raise one beef cow, cow or, or steer, you need so many hundreds of gallons of water, but, but this is creating a, a significant misperception about what that actually really means in the landscape, right? Yes. And first of all, I just want to pause and say, I love the way you, I don't know if it's intentional or not, the way you said restore, because <laughs> I hadn't ever thought about that word that way. It is, it is, it is about getting back in, storing again, something that once was there, um, the carbon and the water and the life into the soil and into the landscape. So, um, yes, water is something that I've focused on a lot over the years as an environmental lawyer. Actually, both the job I did at National Wildlife Federation, as well as the job I did at Waterkeeper, were focused a lot, almost primarily, on water. <clears throat> so it's something I've worked on and thought about a lot and read a lot about and I think it is one of the biggest misperceptions around 
beef specifically because there have been these kind of, you know, they were they were around long before memes existed, you know, but there were these things flying around saying that, you know, your hamburger, you know, was, you know, <laughs> a lake's worth of water, you know, or whatever, you know, ridiculous exaggeration. And I, again, when I sort of actually looked at the research and looked at the studies and understood what the numbers meant, I was really surprised at how false that argument is because for, for many different reasons. Um, and I kind of break it down in some detail in the, in my book, Defending Beef. But this, you know, again, kind of the short version is that for one thing, um, the vast, vast, vast majority of water that goes into beef anywhere in the world, but certainly here in the United States, is from rainfall. It's it's not water that's being extracted from the ground. It's not water that's being, you know, taken from a lake or from a municipal water system or whatever. It's rainfall. Okay, so it's water that would be there anyways. And then the question is, well, what happens with it? And the really interesting part that I think really surprises people is that that water gets, you know, sort of captured in the soil and, and it ends up being stored essentially in vegetation. And as we've been talking about, vegetation has a really valuable role in protecting the soil, protecting the below ground environment, protecting the whole ecosystem. And actually, that whole grass system or you know whatever vegetative system you're talking about really benefits by this e this animal impact you have you sort of have to have the grazing of it in order for it to be diverse and for the growth to be triggered and and so forth and grazing animals do that but it's that water in the vegetation that makes up the vast majority of the water that's in those water footprint numbers. So from my perspective, that water really doesn't even belong in that number. And um, the these um, a group of scientists a number of years ago at UC Davis also felt that way and made that argument. And they did a detailed analysis of how much water would go into a pound of beef if you didn't count that number, if you didn't count the water that's in the grass, essentially, and the natural rainfall that's in the grass. Okay. And what they found was that the number that water, that beef is still, you know, more water intensive than some other foods that's undeniable, but it was actually um, comparable to other foods that people commonly eat, such as rice. And so it took, it dramatically reduced. It doesn't, it's, it's not an outsized water footprint. It's a water footprint that's you know, comparable to many other things that people already eat. And so I think that's just, to me, that's like, it's kind of a context point. You know, it, you need to think of it in the greater context. Um, and then the other piece of that is that where you have ecosystems with grazing animals that are well-managed, you actually have more water stored in that ecosystem. You have more water stored in the soil, dramatically more. And that's been, you know, quantified in a number of different places in a number of different studies, and it's been shown to be a dramatic increase. And um, also, you're storing more water in the vegetation that's on the landscape because you have more vegetation. There's more, um, you know, just held in the ecosystem because you have more plant growth because of the presence of the grazing animals. So the grazing animals actually, again, when well managed, 
It's not the cow, it's the how, you know, it's the phrase I like to say over and over again. If they're well managed, you will actually be essentially protecting water. And as I talk about as well in defending beef, that's the quantity side of it. But there's also a water quality side, which is, you know, the pollution. Are are we polluting? And again, there's been a lot of it suggestion over the years that that beef cattle cause a lot of water pollution. But in reality, where you have well-managed grazing animals, that that sort of vegetative cover that you will have in a grazing landscape is extremely effective at filtering the water that's going to the ground and in many cases also ending up in surface water. And so you, there again, this has been quantified in a number of different studies, you actually have cleaner water where you have grazing animals than especially compared to something like crop production. So um, it's a, you know, the water side to me, there's that quantity argument and there's that quality argument. And on both sides of it, I think um, the question's a lot more complex than people tend to realize. And I think there's a very strong, you know, pro beef <laughs> argument on both quantity and quality. Yeah, I really appreciate this. And, and you know, to give a, a shout out and, and connect another dot to another wonderful uh, Chelsea Green author, uh, Judy, Judith Schwartz, who's written a book, Cows Save the Planet, as well as a book on water. And we actually did two different uh, podcast conversations with her about each of the one, one each. Uh, she's helped connect some of those dots as well. And, and I think one of the things that may not be intuitive to folks that you're, you're hitting on here is the, the fertility boosting effect of the grazing animals, right? And to emphasize the point you're making when we're doing uh, cereal or grass crop production, which is rice or corn, um, often we're, we're putting in these nutrients, right, that are flowing into the water, infiltrating into the surface water, the, the creeks, the ponds, the major river uh, deltas causing incredible uh, adverse ecological impacts. And I think it's especially when we get into the kind of um, what do we call it, frankenmeat or faux meat, you call it in the book, thinking about, well, is it, is it better to make, you know, protein substitutes from crops like soy versus grazing uh, cows on uh, undisturbed grassland landscapes? I think it's really important to kind of unpack this whole thing a little bit more. And I was hoping with your background and expertise, you could Tell us a bit more about the adverse impacts on water we're seeing from conventional crop production worldwide. Yeah, so it, it there's absolutely this whole question of chemical runoff and chemical seepage into groundwater. And even, of course, um, chemicals that are uh, present in the air surrounding these fields and dramatic impacts on wildlife, whether they're migrating, you know, monarchs or other birds. Um, in fact, there's a lot of really good research that I cite, some of it in, in my book, um, about migrate migratory birds and how where you have a kind of a grazing landscape compared to a crop field, um, how much better it is and how much um, more um, robust the populations 
tend to be. And you can just go out into a field and see a dramatic difference in that regard, literally just on your own, just walk out into a grazing pasture and then walk out into a crop field and you'll see very little uh, wildlife in the, you know, the crop field versus a, a, a pasture, which is, you know, like a, you know, sort of Amazon, Amazonian rainforest type environment, you know, where there's just lots of teeming life. And one one thing that I've noticed um, over the years myself is the is the sounds. You know, if you're if you're in the middle of a pasture or a grazed landscape, you're going to hear a lot of birds and you're going to hear a lot of insects and you're just going to you're going to feel the presence of a lot of life. And if you walk into the middle of a conventional corn or soy field, um, it's, you know, it's almost like being in a, a large parking lot. You know, there's, it's just, there's a dramatic um, difference that's just visible to the eye and to the ear. Um, so I would say, and then the other piece of the sort of conventional crop uh, land versus, you know, a grazed area is that um, you're, you're basically, you know, um, the whole thing that you're doing there is you're sort of scraping off and replacing, you know, essentially a natural environment that can be, um, that can be the the home, you know, the the uh, the habitat for not just the birds, but uh, insects and snakes and so many other things. And you know, and I, I'm always struck when we have visitors here at our ranch they're so taken with how much wildlife is present here. Um, and if you were to walk through a conventional field, you just wouldn't have that same experience. And you're gonna, in addition to the absence of the wildlife and the presence of chemicals, if it's a conventional farm, but um, there's also, uh, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry, there was one other point I was gonna make on that and and it just escaped me, but it'll come back to me at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> There's oh, a dramatic difference though. You're yeah. you're gonna see on the sort of ecological level. Oh, soil erosion. I'm sorry, that's it. Yes. So Thank there's you. this there's this protective blanket that we've you know already talked about a few times that is created by the sort of dense and diverse vegetation that's gonna exist in a grazed environment. And it it you don't have that in a crop production setting. And this has really um, been something that struck me again on a sort of a personal firsthand account uh, level. When I was driving through over the years, a number of different times I've been driving through either Iowa um, sort of corn and soy territory or Idaho where I have a sister who lives there and I was driving through potato fields and I've never seen, it was, it was outside of the growing season and I've never seen such a desolate landscape. It was dry, gray, dusty dirt. And I do say dirt, not soil everywhere. I mean, to as far as the eye could see for miles. And I was just, oh my God, because the irony of, I remembered I, I was being interviewed at a radio station in San Francisco by a vegan very nice woman, but a vegan radio producer who had me on her show and she was eating a potato and that was her vegan lunch. And I was thinking to myself as I was driving through those potato fields, like in her mind, she's doing something that is helpful and ecologically beneficial by not eating animals and eating this potato. 
And then I'm driving through these desolate landscapes and I'm thinking, this is not ecologically healthy here. And I just, you know, it's the kind of stuff that I just, I wish, you know, more people would be out in the landscapes more often and actually seeing what farming and ranching actually looks like in real in the real world because rather than just sitting in their you know urban offices with ideas that's what i found that was that was siri <laughs> creepy siri agrees <laughs> <laughs> siri's helping okay yeah and i i think i might have gotten on a couple tangents there but hopefully i answered the question that you asked <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did. And also, I think, wove in a few really important themes. And this 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 exact thing you're speaking to is something that has become abundantly clear to me over the last several years, not to pick on any particular um, friend of ours who might be vegan or urban. Um, but one of the things I've certainly noticed is, is that a lot of the folks who have the misperceptions around the role of grazing animals in ecological stewardship and restoration um, tend to be urban um, and, and tend not to spend much time at farms and ranches. Yes. And from my perspective, for a variety of reasons, and, and you kind of get at this too with some of your discussion around children's immunity, which I want to be sure to ask about, but for a variety of reasons, it seems to me one of the things that would be really, really helpful as we are species wide confronted by so many challenging systemic interconnected uh, situations is, is for more of us to get out and spend time at farms and ranches, especially those of us who are urban dwellers, especially those of us who are educated urban dwellers who have, you know, the, the privilege of the time and resources where maybe on a, a Saturday it's relatively feasible for us to get out of town and visit a farm or a ranch. Um, this is me, you know, and I'm going to ask you, you know, if you could wave your magic wand question in a few minutes, but this is this is part of what my uh, magic wand response would involve. I think it would help all of us uh, to see that interconnectivity more between the agricultural and the urban communities. and. Back on the biodiversity piece, in, in your chapter on biodiversity, you devote a whole chapter to this. Um, you you mention a nature conservancy study um, looking at ponds and songbirds just to drive this, this point home. Not only do you have the anecdotal evidence, right, of folks visiting your ranch, <laughs> and I know what this is like. Right here, I'm at a small regenerative farm elk run outside of the uh, Boulder Lions area in Colorado. And I can hear the birds often, even from my office. Um, but in addition to the anecdotal pieces, you, you provide a good bit of scientific studies that are looking at this biodiversity impact. And obviously biodiversity along with climate and water and some of these other major issues we're facing is, is one of the most important. So I was hoping maybe you could just tell us a bit about that Nature Conservancy study and, yeah. and why we ought to know about it. Well, I didn't know about vernal pools until I moved to California. It was not even a term I was familiar with, but that's what that study was specifically looking at. And it's another example of how we think we know something and then we actually sort of try to research it and document it and we find it's, the story's quite different. So um, there was actually a fair amount of 
controversy surrounding vernal pools. These are sort of ephemeral pools that just appear periodically, sort of small ponds on open landscapes in California, and I'm sure other parts of the West, but I know this is particularly an issue in California. And for many years, there was a kind of a movement within the environmental community that we needed to get cattle off of these areas because it was believed that the vernal pools were really important and we had cattle on a lot of these landscapes where the vernal pools would seasonally appear and so the feeling was oh they're harming it you know the land the the plant life and the animal life in those vernal pools is being injured by the presence of cattle so there was kind of a movement um to get cattle out of those areas <clears throat> and the nature conservancy decided to study this and figure out try to understand well what does it take to make a healthy vernal pool environment and actually, the person who did this study expressed quite a bit of surprise um, at the results because when they started this study, they they weren't exactly sure. You know, a lot of studies are done with a predetermined outcome that people want to get to. But this was actually, I believe, a study where they were trying to understand how do we create a healthy environment for the you know for the preservation of these um, really ecologically unique vernal pools, and they wanted to preserve them because. There are quite a few species of animals, wild animals, that have been found in these vernal pools that are extremely rare. Okay, so there was a kind of a feeling like, oh God, we gotta get cattle out of these areas. Okay, and so a multi-year study was undertaken looking at the vernal pool environments, looking at the cattle, you know, and in in, in trying to uh, sort of measure the impact. And at the result, the result of the study was that they discovered that where you had cattle present in vernal pool situations, you had healthier vernal pools. You had more and you had more species living in them. And you basically had a healthier ecosystem that existed um, as it should have, because of course, vernal pools would have evolved during times when there were large numbers of grazing animals on the landscape. You know, and in California specifically, we had something like 18 uh, megafauna species that included not just the elk, a lot of people are familiar that the tule elk were here in larger numbers at some point in time, and not, you know, in the not too distant past, but there were also things like camels that existed in California and um, and other large, uh, you know, two two types of elephant uh, related animals that existed in prehistoric times. And so you had these big, heavy animals on the landscape that were having all kinds of ecological effects on the landscape over millions of years, and they created ecosystems. And now that you know, most of those animals are all gone, just tiny numbers of elk remain and then some deer and not much else from the wild um, side of things. And so it turns out the Nature Conservancy study really seemed to um, bolster the argument that having domesticated animals that would serve as proxies for those disappeared wild animals and sort of have impacts on the landscape that would preserve the ecosystems was really important. And so the Nature Conservancy study actually helps make the argument that you need to have these, especially as Alan Savory points out, cattle uniquely because they're large, heavy animals. That's often been said why they're so ecologically damaging. But as he argues, and I really agree with him, is they are actually uniquely valuable because so many of these disappeared, you know, 
the the musk ox and the you know the the mammoth and all these other animals that once roamed in large numbers on our landscapes and are not really here anymore yeah. um we need to have things that are somewhat similar to that in sort of in their weight and their size. And so the impact is more similar. And so I, I love that study too. It's just, it's very kind of like, you know, mind bending and, you know, orthodox shattering and everything else. And so, yeah. And I didn't know anything about any of that until moving to California and learning about that particular um, ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, and by, by the way, just to give another shout out, um, and I'm going to show your book again to our uh, video viewing audience, Defending Beef, a beautiful book that is extremely well documented, uh, published by Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, and I'll remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with Nicolette Han Nyman, the author of Defending Beef. And uh, uh an extraordinary uh, attorney and uh, uh, defender of nature and ecosystems. And uh, I want to be sure to mention that you can get the book at chelseagreen.com um, and you can use the code YOE35, that's for Why on Earth's 35% discount that Chelsea Green offers our audience as part of our partnership um, when you get the book. And uh, you can also go to whyonearth.org to find on our partners and supporters page, uh, Chelsea Green, along with a number of others who make our podcast series possible, whom I'll thank in just a moment. Um, and I want to be sure to mention too, that you can connect with Nicolette on her uh, Facebook page, which is called Defending Beef. And of course, we'll include the links uh, for all of these resources in our show notes. And uh, she also has um, a defending beef uh, presence on Twitter or X as it's now known. Um, and so, yes, a, a very big shout out to Chelsea, Chelsea Green Publishing. Again, the code is YOE35 to take advantage of that generous discount they offer uh, to our audience. And a special thanks also to Purium Organic Superfoods. I've got mine right here. This is a delicious organic greens blend that I enjoy very frequently. Um, a big shout out to Waylay Waters, uh, regeneratively and biodynamically grown hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts. Uh, thanks to Earth Hero Sustainable Products. A thank you to Profitable Purpose Consulting. Uh, also to Soilworks Biodynamic Garden Preparations. Of course, Earth Coast Productions that has a huge hand in making our podcast series possible. And finally, a very special thank you to all of our Why on Earth community ambassadors, many of whom are giving on a monthly basis. And uh, if you're not yet in our monthly giving program and you'd like to be, you can go to whyonearth.org and click on the donate button and set all of that up at whatever level works best for you. If you'd like to contribute at a $33 or greater level per month, we will send you at least one jar of the Waylay Waters Aromatherapy Soaking Salts monthly as a thank you gift. So uh, be sure to uh, check that out and support the podcast that way if you're able. Um, and one of the many benefits you get as an ambassador includes access to our resources, behind the scenes resources that include video recordings from multiple 
uh, conferences, seminars, and symposia that we've hosted and or participated in and our behind the scenes segments with many of our podcast guests, which we'll also be doing with Nicolette uh, right after this main interview. Uh, so in order to access those behind the scenes segments, you have to be uh, enrolled in our ambassador program. So encourage you to join. It's a lot of fun and a lot of great folks worldwide doing amazing, amazing work. And so Nicolette, we've been talking quite a lot about the ecological side of this coin. And you had mentioned right at the outset that we're talking about really two sides to this coin when thinking about beef in particular. And so the other is diet and health and impacts on diet and health. And uh, I, I want to be sure to get to the bioavailable nutrients, the omega-3 fatty acids. And, and so before doing that as a bit of a segue, I thought I'd uh, circle back and ask you about this children's immunity thing that uh, you mentioned in the book, because this is also, and I'm a parent as well, this is also a really important topic, right? And we want our kids to thrive. And uh, one, one of the things that's happening, especially for those of us, again, in the urban settings, is that the kiddos aren't uh, getting exposed to some of the, the good things nature has to offer quite to the same degree, right? So could you um, unpack that for us and, and we'll seg into the dietary discussion from there? Yeah, so there is this whole question of sort of urban and suburban lifestyles versus sort of how we've evolved over, you know, tens of thousands of years and our, you know, pre-human ancestors, you know, over 100,000 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and if we think about how we're living today, our daily lives, they are so radically different from how we would have been living for the vast majority of the time we've been on earth, you know, and our, our pre-human ancestors. Um, and actually I'm getting kind of interested in this in a sort of broader context of everything from lighting, you know, like we live not by the sun and which should tell us when it's time to go to bed, time to rise, et cetera. We have all this artificial lighting and now we have this super artificial lighting that has this weird, you know, I mean, I, 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 thought I was kind of imagining it at first, but I have noticed myself that I have um, negative effects, whether it's help, you know, feeling kind of headachy or dizzy from certain types of artificial lighting. So, and it turns out those are quite widespread. So I have a lot of thoughts about just how we're living today and how different that is from how we would have been living, you know, and how we evolved and how we've been living for such a very, very long time. Um, <clears throat> but the the sort of immunity side of that is that we we lived of course you know sort of out in nature and amongst you know and in contact with plants animals of all types and soils for the again the sort of the vast majority of our existence as a species and 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 as our and the species that preceded us that we evolved from and now we live in these very sanitized environments where we're, you know, we're in buildings. Um, people, I lived in New York City for five years, so I'm, you know, very familiar. And I've lived in other big urban environments as well. But, you know, I, I really um, was really aware at that time how much I was on cement, you know, concrete, asphalt, um, metal, stone. You know, you're you're kind of not, you know, in contact with the soil, not in contact with plants, you know, just kind of what you would have been around as a human forever until very recently in time and how sort of unnatural that was and how many different health effects that could have, you know, and I noticed I had 
a sort of low level insomnia the whole time I lived in New York City for five years. I thought I actually had insomnia. And then I moved, married Bill Nyman, moved to the ranch and slept like a baby first night, <laughs> literally. And I realized, oh, I don't have insomnia. It's just living in Manhattan. So in any case, <clears throat> we have um, kind of divorced ourselves from these natural environments. And one of the things that has been super interesting is this whole idea that as a species, we were kind of coexisting and living alongside and even really close proximity with not just wild animals, but domesticated animals. And actually, there are these very interesting paintings I've seen from France in the Middle Ages where people are actually sleeping with their livestock and so forth because it, you know, kept them warm. And it was also a way to just, um, you know, watch out for your animals and make sure they weren't being stolen or, you know, who knows all the different reasons people were doing it. But people were living in very close proximity for much of human history and the migrations that happened around the world. A lot of them happened with, you know, goats and cattle. Um, and so we were sort of constantly interchanging diseases and we were developing sort of population-wide immunity to a lot of diseases because we were being exposed to them um, by virtue of being near those animals. And so one of the really interesting things that happened in the sort of modern medical research was a few decades ago when there began to be this pretty dramatic rise in food allergies and also asthma among children, it was realized that the Amish were a community that was almost absent of both of these conditions, that children were not experiencing very much food allergy or asthma. And so you were seeing a pretty dramatic rise in industrialized countries, including the United States, and almost none uh, in Amish community. And so they called it the Amish effect, in fact. And so there began to be you know, research being done in lots of different places around the world trying to figure this out. And there's a pretty solid case that's been made now that it has to do with the exposure to livestock. And because Amish are not just typical farmers, like there's a lot of farming in the United States that's not Amish. And as you know, as we know, uh, the vast majority of farming now is not diversified farming, it's monocrop. And so, you know, you can live on a corn and soy farm or, you know, a farm that's just raising other grains or whatever, and maybe there's no livestock there. But the unique thing about the Amish farming was it's diversified and it almost always has livestock there. So they um, kind of started homing in on this idea that livestock were essential for um, for this sort of immunity boost that it came to be believed was the reason children on, on Amish farms were not getting food allergies and were not getting asthma. Not that there's zero, but pretty close to zero in those populations. And so um, taking that kind of you know, broadening that concept, we as sort of modern humans living in mostly urban and suburban environments, we're kind of missing out on this opportunity to get exposure to all kinds of, you know, microorganisms in our environments from soil, from animals, from plants. And, um, and it's, you know, everything from perhaps um, pandemics, um, like the COVID pandemic that we obviously all just recently experienced, we're just more vulnerable as a population now to lots of different kinds of problems, whether they're infectious diseases or allergies or things like asthma. And 
It, you know, that may sound kind of hokey to someone who hasn't been hearing about this, um, but there's really quite a lot of science on this now. And ironically, you know, again, kind of not the cow, it's the how, where you have large concentrated forms of animal agriculture, it can have a negative effect, lots, lots of different kinds of negative effects on human health. But also there hasn't really been nearly as much showing of a positive impact on immunity for people living in those environments, because you're actually, <laughs> you know, first of all, the kinds of exposure that you're going to get are different. And um, you don't have that sort of daily interaction with healthy animals that are going to help your body develop immunity and just um, ability to cope with all different kinds of microorganisms that you get when you um, are on a more diversified farm that has a regular interaction with healthy animals. So um, yeah, it's a super interesting topic that I think there's a lot of research going on. The research I cite in the book comes from various parts of the world in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. Um, but I think um, interestingly, just on PBS, just a like a couple of years ago, I saw something about asthma and they were talking about it and they said, if you can possibly be around animals of any kind, that's good. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I, I swear, you know, 20 years ago, they would have been saying, if you have asthma, avoid animals. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's a there's a growing um, understanding of the importance of exposing yourself to things in order to be healthier. And, mm -hmm. and even with food allergies, they're starting to use exposure therapy more. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I said yeah. everything that uh, no, it's, <laughs> you were hoping I'd talk about or not, but this was, yeah, no, it's perfect. And, and really the, the emphasis on healthy animals, right? So when we're talking about these issues, what we're not talking about, just to be crystal clear, are the concentrated animal feeding units, otherwise known as feedlots, where uh, conditions are very different than uh, naturally grazing animals out on pasture, right? It's a very different type of system. And when you're talking about healthy animals in particular, that's of course related in part to them eating diverse nutrient dense uh, foods. And for us humans, this is also critical. And, and you point out that with uh, grass fed pasture ranged beef, we are getting a whole suite of very important nutrition that often isn't available through uh, sort of vegetarian um, uh, processed food alternatives or other foods that we might be eating these days, especially in the modern industrial context. And I was hoping that you could walk us through what's going on and, and why are these nutrients particularly bioavailable, as you point out, and, and how is this impacting bones, muscles, brains, um, you know, the good functioning of mind, body, spirit, if you will, for each of us as humans? Yeah, well, I get, you know, my background is as a biologist. That was my bio, my major in um, undergrad. And I also had this sort of very long, you know, history as a child and, um, you know, growing up with my parents who were very focused on um, sort of being out in nature and eating good food and getting lots of exercise. And so I had this kind of focus on health and how do you live healthfully that goes back since, you know, literally birth. 
Um, And, you know, one of the things that has always just sort of inherently made sense to me is, again, to sort of think about our evolution as a species and what what were we doing and what what have we always done? And therefore, our, you know, our sort of physiology is constructed in such a way that expects to get certain things. And I think it's very important to note you know, that we began eating as a species, we began, and, and our, sort of, again, our pre-human ancestors began eating meat over 3 million years ago. So that's a lot of time during which we as a species were evolving with that being a key component of our diet. And, you know, there's all kinds of arguments about how much and how necessary and blah, blah, blah. But there's no doubt whatsoever that we've been eating meat for a very, very long time and that it was a key component of our evolution. It, you know, there's um, there's so much nourishment in meat that it helped us to grow bigger grains, brains, but it was also the complexity of hunting, which is said to have contributed to the fact that we evolved bigger brains and we just evolved sort of more complex inter, you know, societies, more complex communities and relationships with one another in order to be able to hunt and to be able to prepare the meat. And meat has been one of these foods that for a very, very long time has been cooked. In fact, I don't know if you've read that book um, by Richard Wrangham, Catching Fire, which I love. And I had the pleasure of spending time with him when I was at the Nobel event, actually. And um, and his whole argument is that we actually were cooking, um, that cooking has been a really important part of our evolution. And that maybe one of the reasons why some of the pathogens that are more concerning are from meat in our food system is because of the fact that we never really evolved to eat meat raw. It's one of the foods that we, for a very, very long time, have been cooking. And so we, he argues, haven't really evolved um, the sort of uh, systems to counter the pathogens that occur in meat. So it's there's no, de- no dis- debate whatsoever that it's been an essential part of our evolution for a variety of different reasons. And again, if you sort of think of it from that perspective, I think it's easy to understand that our physiology is built to kind of expect those nutrients to come to us. And a lot of other foods that have, for example, protein, protein is a food that, um, a macronutrient that we get a lot of from meat, fish, dairy, eggs. Um, And then of course there are plant sources to it as well. But what people very often fail to understand is that difference in bioavailability, like how well can your body actually utilize it? And so when you look at a nutritional label for a food and it says it has five grams of protein in it or whatever, that doesn't mean your body's going to be able to utilize five grams. And the studies have been done. And again, kind of, you know, objective sources like the the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, they have huge divisions that study nutrition and health and diet. And and they just emphasize over and over again in their documents that there's almost no way to replace the foods that come from animals, whether it's eggs, meat, fish. 
because they are so high in um, protein and many other nutrients, but also because the form that they come in is of such high quality. And in fact, there's a whole thing called a protein quality index. And so a lot of people think just by eating soy or just by eating, you know, potatoes, again, you're going to get enough protein. And in fact, there's a whole which I think is a kind of an absurd, but there's a whole um, narrative out there that we eat too much protein in the industrialized world. <clears throat> I think actually that 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 is totally untrue. But in any case, we won't get you know bogged down in that point. <laughs> but regardless, you won't get the the same quality of protein from non-animal based foods. So for me, it kind of goes back to that evolutionary argument. And then there's um, sort of what I would call kind of an emerging body of science that's showing that um, the way food is raised impacts what's available nutritionally and that there are actually thousands of compounds contained in food that are not on a nutritional label at all. They're just sort of beginning to be identified, these phytochemicals. And they're not just available in plants, you know, vegetables and fruits, but they're also available in animal-based foods, meat, milk, and eggs, and how much of those chemicals, um, those naturally occurring chemicals are present um, depends on the way the animal was raised. So having an animal in a healthful environment, and as um, Fred Provenza shows in his um, study and in his books, a diverse environment um, where they can graze on a lot of different kinds of plants is really important to producing food that is um, supportive of vibrant health over the long term. So you can substitute, you know, you can get um, something that contains calcium, you can get something that contains protein, blah, 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 on a nutritional label. You can do that quite easily. You can construct a diet that would appear to meet your nutritional needs. I am more and more convinced that if you are eating foods that are from an industrial system, especially processed foods, I'm reading a whole book right now about ultra processed foods called Ultra Processed People by a British uh, doctor and excellent book that I recommend to people, um, anyone who's interested in this topic. It's, it's basically making the argument that the core of what's wrong with sort of health in the industrialized world is how much processed food is being consumed. And so much of what people are eating when they stop eating meat or stop drinking milk or stop eating eggs is ultra processed food. So to me, that is sort of at the crux of the danger of it. You're, um, you're, stopping eating something that we evolved with for millions of years. Our physiology is built on, you know, reliance on it. And then you're substituting it with something that you're basically making yourself into a science experiment. <laughs> like what are the long-term health effects of these foods that have just been invented in the last decade or so? And, you know, I, for one, am not willing to subject myself to that science experiment, nor am I willing to subject my kids to that. So I try very, very hard to get as much food as possible um, from places that I know it was well-raised, it was local. Um, the vast majority of the meat that we eat is meat that we raise ourselves. Not everybody obviously has that option, but they can get it from good sources. It's available all over the country. And <clears throat> to try to make as much food as possible ourselves and um, have, you know, as as little processed food as possible, you're probably not going to ever totally get it out of your diet. But 
I'm working on it every day, <laughs> trying to minimize it. I love it. Nicola, it, it is so wonderful to have you walk us through these issues in such a, a clear, cogent, compelling manner. Um, so grateful we could have the time today uh, for you to join us on the podcast. And before signing off um, to do our behind the scenes segment, I want to invite you to do two things. And, and the first is if you, I'm going to ask you this question. If you could wave your magic wand uh, and, and, and help us envision what a, a, a fully regenerative food system looks like and help us picture that and also help us understand the steps we can take to get there. Um, I'd love, I'd love for you to share that with us. Okay. So the first thing I would do, and this may sound like it's not related to regenerative agriculture, but I think it is, um, is my magic wand wave would give everyone on the planet the capacity to cook. Because again, the more I've learned and thought about this and read and talked to people over the years, the more convinced I am that when you are cooking, when you're gathering your own ingredients and preparing your own food and feeding people and feeding yourself with that food, you start to think about and you learn and you care about where it comes from, how it was produced, and you're going to be eating healthier food and you're going to be supporting a healthier food system. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is I would just get rid of all the big concentrated animal production facilities around the world, because I think that those places do not produce healthy food. They do not, um, they have tremendous environmental impacts and impacts for the neighbors and the people working there. And they do not create humane environments for the animals that live there. So I just really believe that as a human race, we should not be raising food that way. Um, and then what I would want to do is take those animals and return them to the landscape around the world. Every farm <clears throat> would have lots of different things that it was doing. And actually, just a few months ago, I added to my presentations that I give, I added a slide from a Grandma Moses painting. And it was just this beautiful, I don't know if you've seen it before, Aaron, but it's just this beautiful painting of a farm uh, with all different kinds of things happening on it. Lots of different people interacting with each other in different ways and lots of different um, animals and plant crops. And you just see how a farm in a traditional setting is a community and it's a place where there is community and where people are interacting with each other and with their animals and with their land and how there's just connectedness happening naturally. And so the, to me, the return of the animals to the landscape and to more complex, more diverse farming that looks more like ecosystems rather than, you know, factory production systems. To me, those, I think those are three uh, things I've mentioned, three major um, shifts that I would like to see. And I think if just that happened, I mean, those are big things, but if those three things happened, we would be in a completely different place in terms of ecological health and in terms of our own health. And so those would be my magic wand steps. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And I, and I love too, that not only is this a big aspirational vision, but, and so many folks like 
you and your husband, like my friends here at Elk Run Farm and many others worldwide are moving in this direction. And uh, it's it's so beautiful that, that we have the opportunity as, as humans to make these kinds of choices. And may we mobilize more and more in this direction together. Yes. Well, Nicolette, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's absolutely wonderful to have this time to visit with you. Thank you for having me. See ya. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.